Hey everybody, this is Chris Irwin, and welcome to the Rare Sense Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Ben Bergeron. Ben is one of the most successful coaches in the sport of CrossFit, having led athletes to multiple world championships. He's also the founder of one of the most well-known CrossFit gyms in the country, CrossFit New England. I wanted to talk to Ben because so much of his coaching methodology is about mindset. It's a huge component of his two books, Chasing Excellence and Unlocking Potential, as well as the content he puts out at comptrain.com. During our conversation, Ben and I talk about mental capacity, the spectrum of mind fitness from victim to warrior, adapting the elite athlete mindset to everyday life, the futility of anger, and other topics. Ben is a longtime friend, and it was great catching up with him on these subjects. Remember that none of the ideas expressed here should be construed as medical or psychiatric advice. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition or disease and nothing I say represents the official position or opinions of any organization or persons outside of rare sense. If you suffer from a mental or physical disorder or illness, please seek assistance from a licensed professional. Now, without further ado, here's Ben Bergeron. Ben, good to see you, man. Thanks, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, Chris, here. Good, uh, it. good to be chatting with you again. Yeah. So let's start off with anybody for anybody that doesn't know you, has no idea who you are. Give me a quick synopsis of your background, what you do. Mm, um, so I'm a coach in the CrossFit space. Essentially, I own a I own a gym in Natick, Massachusetts, which you know very well, and I've been lucky enough to coach some high level athletes that have done really well in the sport. Um, beyond that. I'm a I'm a dad and a husband. Okay, but you but you obviously do a lot outside of that. I mean, I would definitely put you on a level above just your standard CrossFit coach. Outside of even just the you coach affiliates, right? You talk to other mm-hmm. um, people that run gyms. Uh, you've written a book as well, so I, I don't think we should throw that out. Actually, let's start there. So your book, Chasing Excellence. It came out what five six years ago something like that. Yeah, I can't. I think it was um, 2016, um, and then I, I I published a second book uh, last year. Oh, okay. I, yeah. Sorry, I'm not even tracking on the second book. Well, let's talk about the first book first because it's. I read it, but I haven't read it in I think five or six years. Mm-hmm. I read it then. But one of the things I remember, or the I think the very one of the central points in it that I remember was this sort of setup of the CrossFit games, elite athlete, Katrin dealing with failure basically. Right. And not having essentially the mental tools Mm -hmm. to deal with that. You, if I remember this correctly, it was a situation where you'd done a lot of visualization, a lot of mental preparation for the event, but it was all positively oriented. So it was like, imagine winning the games and imagine crushing this event. And when something doesn't go right for whatever reason there kind of wasn't there wasn't a mental scenario built in to deal with that right am i remembering that correctly uh a little bit so she um you're combining two stories but yeah we're really close yeah (laughs) so the story in five or six years yeah so the story of katrin is that she had been to the crossfit games twice and was a very average athlete there's 40 athletes that go every year she finished in the mid-20s her rookie year and her sophomore season. Her third year trying to go to the games, she had a complete mental breakdown. It was had very little physi- physiologically. 
a complete mental breakdown during a qualifier event for the games. She cried on the competition floor and that kept her from qualifying for the games that year. That off season, she moved to Boston, worked with me, and that's when we kind of rewrote the, the way that she thought about competition. The second part of that story, which you're talking about in terms of the visualization, is the way that I started my career working with athletes, which was the way I learned about visualization, which is visualize yourself having the perfect lift, the perfect competition, the perfect public speaking event, the perfect dot, dot, dot. And anyone that's been in any real world scenario outside of a vacuum knows that that's not the way it happens in real life. So the second that something happens outside of the script, people are kind of thrown for a loop and wait a minute, this isn't how I, I envisioned this going. And they're left with, with with no way of knowing how to play the deck, the the cards that have been dealt to them. So that's essentially what we, I, I learned from my earlier years of coaching athletes. And by the time Katrin got to me, I had a different way of approaching that. And that's what we worked on the next few years. And luck, you know, I'm not going to say it's because of that, but she ended up winning the CrossFit Games the next two years. So, so what was what was the change then? How do you deal with that? With that? Yeah, the, the first one is uh, understanding reality, right? It's like, I don't care how much you want something to happen. I don't care how much you feel like you deserve something to happen. There is reality, which is actually going to happen. And reality very, very infrequently lines up with your expectations. So when reality presents itself, whether it's you know in a competition setting where you get a bad call, the ref blows something, you make some mistakes and you're down early. Like how do you prepare for those things? It's way more important to prepare for the challenges than it is to prepare for the sunshine, rainbows and unicorns in the backyard. It's kind of once you say it, it's kind of like, of course, obviously, you know, in, you know, your background, you guys know this better than anybody. It's what happens when your buddy goes down. What happens when the helicopter crashes? What happens when things don't go according to plan? Well, as much as you want to have, you want to analyze the situation beforehand. You want to prepare and have a strategy going in. You also have to be equally ready to improvise along the way. And if you're not ready to improvise along the way, you're stuck with this vision, plan of execution that isn't matching reality. We have to constantly be ready to expect, this is the cliche thing now, but it's expect adversity and expect to overcome it because it's going to be there. And then if it doesn't come there, awesome, beautiful, amazing. Now the the one kind of, you have to put an asterisk next to this thing because when you start talking about this, people go, so you're telling people to envision, you know, having a crappy performance? That sounds terrible. Like how are they going to, and it's not that. It's the way Michael Phelps did it with his coach, Bob Bowen, which is you visualize everything. It's not just visual. So you visualize the perfect race. You visualize getting off the blocks first. You visualize coming up in that first stroke being perfectly timed. You per, you visualize the right number of strokes and the flip term happening perfectly. You visualize all that. And that hopefully is what's going through your head when you're approaching the actual blocks and going on to the, uh, the, uh, the event. That's what you want. Run, that's the videotape you want running through your head. But in the days, weeks, and months leading up to the event, it would be 
detrimental to not practice contingency plans. You have to also practice, and Michael Phelps did this better than anybody, what happens when I jump in and my goggles fill up with water? What happens if I jump in and for some reason I come up and I'm in last place? Do I try to chase them down early at the first turn? Do I let them fall back to me? Like You have to have all of these things in place so when they come up, you don't turn into freak out mode. You go, okay, now I'm putting in this videotape. This is the thing we're executing with now. And the reality of that is you're not going to be able to plan for everything. So what we actually need to be able to do more so than visualizing every contingency, you know, this is like what the Patriots have done so well in the Tom Brady era. I call it the Tom Brady era, now, not the Bill Belichick era. <laughs> but they did situation, they called it situational football. That's what they practiced. They didn't practice. They said, okay, it's third and 13. You're on your own uh, nine yard line. What, what are we going to do? And it's like they get ready for all these different things. Well, we can't plan for everything. So instead of trying to plan for every different scenario, thinking about the external environments, the shortcut is forget about what happens externally and work on what's happening internally. When shit goes awry, you get triggered. That's what happens. You become emotional because there's a conscious or subconscious thought that arises from something coming in through your five senses. That's what a trigger is. You see something, you feel something. So um, you're at a bar having a good time. Some dude shoulders you from behind and you spill the beer all over you and your buddies. That's something you felt. Now you're triggered. A thought goes through your head, probably so fast it's subconscious, but that creates an emotion of anger or um, frustration or embarrassment, whatever it is. And then physiologically that causes a react, it, like there's a cascade of hormones that come along with that thing, which causes you to perform and behave in certain ways. What we need to be able to do, whether we're athletes or soccer moms and dads, like and, and everything in between is recognize and be aware of that cascade of events. There is a trigger which causes a thought. That thought creates an emotion and that emotion usually flips back and creates another thought. Now you're in the thinking feeling loop which will eventually create a physiological manifestation in the body. Yeah, right. So so dwell on that where I want to go and I really appreciate you taking it from CrossFit athlete, because most people out there are not CrossFit athletes or not games level athletes. There's obviously a lot of people that are everyday athletes, but they're not competing on that level. So how do you then take that idea, what you're talking about, which I completely agree with, obviously, and turn it into some kind of practice? Because yeah. what I'm trying to do is figure out ways to make these things actionable from a mind fitness perspective. You're obviously very focused in training, coaching in the physical fitness realm, which there's a lot of mental fitness behind that. But for the kind of everyday person that's having a situation like the bar scene there where they're not in a gym, how do they prepare for that? How do you train for something like that, right? Yep. Love it. Um, so I, 
it's really abstract because it's the mind, right? And no one can see your mind and you can't weigh and measure your mind against other people. So it's this big, elusive, fuzzy, weird thing that people have a hard time grasping onto. Right down to like the levels of um, illness, right? If somebody has, if somebody's died, one of your friends is diagnosed with stage four cancer, there is so much sympathy, understanding, and support for that person. If somebody is struggling with something mentally, no one knows what to do with that or if it's even real. That's horrific. That's 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 terrible. That's such a that's such a um, additional challenge that we now have to face. And if we are able to create a framework for the mind the way we are for the body, for the body, we can measure sickness, health, and fitness a, a myriad of different ways. We can measure it from your cholesterol levels to your body fat to your one mile run time, like all those things we could track and say like you, if you can't do a mile in under 20 minutes, you are sick. Like you, if you can do a mile in eight minutes, you are healthy. If you can do a mile in five and a half minutes, you are fit. And fitness is a hedge against sickness. That's great. So we can measure it on a spectrum. Well, what if we could do the same thing for your mind? We could put it on a spectrum. And the spectrum is the same thing where we have sick to health and the different steps along the way. And here's the way it goes is the number one thing we can determine is how much can you handle? That's, that's your mental health. What can you handle? In other words, what sets you off? What do you get rattled by? So Chris wakes up in the morning. Chris is a really balanced, strong person that's done a lot of work on this. So he can handle quite a bit. Chris wakes up in the morning and when he gets downstairs, he makes his coffee like he normally does. But as he goes to turn, this actually happened to my wife this morning, uh, she spills, you spill the coffee. Right then, right then, what's going through your mind? Can you handle that or does it set you off? Now, here's how we can kind of work through the different layers. People go like, it's not binary. It's not, can I handle it or can I not? There's levels in between. Just like you're not either fat or fit, there's levels in between. It's not that you run a five minute mile or 20 minute mile, there's all the paces in between. So what are those levels? And we can figure out where we are during that. So the lowest level, the worst place we can be and I believe the most destructive thing we can do to ourselves as a human being is have a victim mindset. And the victim mindset says, of course this happened. Of course this happened. Just my luck. Like it's all about them. Like the world is out to get them. This is, I was at my kid's soccer game. This, my, I have a 10 year old boy and he's playing club soccer and we were at this game and it started to rain. So during that, all of the parents, not all the parents, a lot of the parents went back to their cars, which was a far away from the park, from the game, to their park, to their car, got umbrellas, came back. Three minutes later, it stopped raining. And one of the dads goes, of course, of course, right after I walk and get my umbrella, it stops raining. Like 
the weather's conspiring, waiting for him to go get his umbrella and come back. That's a victim mindset. Yeah. That's and, just, and j- just interrupt quickly there. I don't know if you feel, I feel like we're societally, we're almost doing the opposite. We're playing into victim mentality more and more these Completely. days. To some yeah. extent. We're, we're empowering people to. Woe is me. The, right. It's Woe like is me. Like, the, this is like. Whatever's yeah. happening to me isn't. I, there's a lot of fault. blame stuff like it's you're not to blame or whatever and i always and it, say what does that matter i don't understand why assigning blame is relevant unless it unless it helps you figure out the problem and therefore the solution this idea of you're not to blame this is to blame not really relevant as far as i'm concerned and that i think really plays into exactly what you're saying this this kind of overall victim mentality yeah and there's a big, big difference between a victim mindset and actually being a victim. We have to like clarify that. There are victims in the world. There are people that horrific, unfair, things that you'll never be able to justify why in the world that happened to that person. Those, that's a real thing. That's not what we're talking about because some of those people don't have a victim mindset and can rise above those horrific circumstances. And that's the the mindset is different. Right. But, but th- that's the exact point that I would make is that even those people that are true victims, again, it doesn't matter unless you can use that somehow to improve your situation. Right. Absolutely right. You can say, yes, I'm a legit victim, but what can you actually do about it? That's what you got to focus Absolutely. on. Right. And I think the, the point you're making about the um, this kind of reactionary thing to things that are going on. And this is what I want to get back to this a little bit too, is the training that you can do to notice those situations as soon as they happen. Because for me, I would say the difference where I've started to make some improvements in this regard in terms of not falling victim to my own thoughts is through meditation, awareness, and just being able to recognize, even if it's not immediately, within five seconds, 10 seconds of having some kind of yeah. irritating reaction going, why am I doing this? Why am I right. having this type of situation? So I'm curious uh, still, if you have specific yeah. training you do with people yep. to get them better. So this is, the, yeah, this is the training, but let me, um, so you have to, here's the idea, here's what you have to do. Here is the training and meditation is cool. Journaling is cool. Um, um, solitude is cool. Um, prolonged exposure to nature is all of those things are tools, but none of those things will actually move the needle until you actually put it into practice in real life. There are plenty of people that meditate for 40 minutes in the morning and 40 minutes a night, but have a massive challenge bringing that practice outside of the sitting with your legs crossed with your thumb and index finger touching and, you know, staring at the, candle with your eyes closed. It doesn't matter what tips, tricks, tools, tactics you put into place. If they work, awesome. Use them. I meditate every single day. I have a really extensive breath practice. I feel like it helps me, but I'm not going to say breath is the way to do this. The way to do this is what you just said, which is awareness. You have to have awareness. And the awareness is, it's not just like, this is pissing me off. The awareness is when something happens, categorize yourself on the spectrum of where are you from a victim, level one, to a pessimist, 
Level two, this sucks, it's raining, but not why is this happening to me? Level three, optimist. Everyone else says like optimist is the top. To me, optimist is the middle. Optimist is just like being healthy. It's like you don't have any problems, but you're not optimizing things. If you can get to level four, which is a realist, a realist understands that good and bad things in the world happen. Every single living thing on planet earth, I don't care if you're a palm tree, there are tropical storms you got. I don't care if you're a dolphin, you can get sunburn. Both those things are true. Every single living thing on planet earth has challenges that need to be overcome. Yet we as human beings think that if it's not a brick paved road, something is amiss. There is a season for everything. There is a season for you to have greatness and success and health and vitality and love. There is also a season, a part of everyday life that you're going to experience hardship, trauma, difficulty, unfairness. Like all of those things are a part of navigating this thing that we call planet earth. But there's a level above that above just accepting it, which is, you know, Shakespeare's thing is there is no good or bad, but thinking makes it so. It's just reality. It's just the things that are happening. But there's a level above that, which I am, you you can appreciate this more, not appreciate, it, have more experience through this than I certainly do. I'm just a coach, but it's the warrior mindset. And a true warrior, like, the samurai, right? That is the best in his dojo needs to leave. He wants to leave the dojo because he wants to be challenged. He wants something more in the point where he will roam the earth looking for a worthy opponent because he knows that a worthy opponent is the only way that he will truly be tested and see what is he worth and then actually experience the growth. We are all here to evolve in order for us to evolve, we have to be challenged. So here's the way this goes. Something happens to you, whether it's spilling your coffee, um, you posting a picture on social media and someone responding like, hey there, chubby. Like, what is the thing that's going to set you off, right? Is it the guy in the bar that's going to bump into you? Something, something today, whether it's the traffic or it's your boss asking you to work on the weekend or it's a coworker that's not pulling their weight or you getting the car and your phone not syncing to your car, whatever it is, there's gonna be something that triggers you. When it triggers you, where do you put yourself on the thoughts that are in your head? Now this is the hard part, the thoughts in your head, where do you rank those? Now that's hard because thoughts are fuzzy. You have 85,000 thoughts a day, whatever it is. So there's an easier way to figure out what is the, actionable. What is the actionable that we're actually going to work on? And that is when your, your speech, your words matter. There's a reason they call it spelling. You're casting spells. Your words matter. So what we're going to do is recognize the sequence that your thoughts become your words and your words become your actions. Your actions dictate who you become as a human being. We're going to break that chain or have awareness of your thoughts. I'm sorry, of your words, because that's the manifestation. Basically, 
Are you complaining, a pessimist? Are you saying, woe is me, a victim? Or are you trying to reframe things like a pessimist? Oh, it's okay. We'll do this. Or are you accepting reality? Guys, this is a challenge right now. Guys, our sales are down. What are we going to do about that? Guy bumps into a bar, not that big of a deal. Or are you a warrior where this happens and you actually get excited? You get excited about these things when you feel that thing happen inside of you. You feel the trigger, you feel the weirdness, and you get excited about that because you know this is where the work happens. This is the practice. In the beginning, we'll only be able to work with small things, spilling coffee, traffic, stuff like that. Then you get to bigger things, baby crying in the middle of the night, coworker not pulling their weight. Then you get to the bigger things, friends gossiping about behind your back, and then you get to the big, biggest things, dealing with illness, sickness, death, whatever it might be. Yeah. So two things I want to dig into a little bit. One is when you talk about this warrior level five, seeking conflict. Can you just reframe that a little bit? Because the concern I have is when someone hears that is they think like, I'm going to go look for a fight type yeah. of thing, right? Which I don't think is obviously what you're saying, but just clarifying what that means a little bit in terms yeah. of what it it's, what does that it, mean right looking for it's conflict. not yeah no it's not seeking conflict so if i said that i misspoke it's definitely not that it's when your stuff gets hit inside of you when you get uncalm when you get rattled when you get anxious when you get stressed when you get nervous when you get um angry when you get depressed when you get Basically, a, a, an emotion that if not tapped will send you down the sewer cycle of thinking emotion, thinking emotion, thinking emotion, where you get trapped in the sewer cycle of that negative spiral. When that starts happening, what's going on in your mind? Are you just letting the mind run rampant in chatter mode? Yeah. Or are you popping up above that and going, hmm, this is my chance to work on this. Right. So I this, think that's the difference, right? It's the looking forward to the opportunity to work on that stuff, right? It's and like, you don't okay, have to go pick fights because it's everywhere. <laughs> that's right. And, it, and it's internal. That's the other point is the challenge is an internal challenge. It's not an external that. challenge. And so it's, it's looking for that opportunity. I know for my own meditative practice, things started to change for me when I actually, I think they're, people's experience might be different, but mine was when I started a meditation practice in my mid forties, it's boring to start. And you're, you're kind of like, I don't know exactly what I'm doing here. Or it felt like I got to get my meditation in that attitude. And it wasn't until I started actually looking forward to it where I sort of changed my approach to it of, okay, these next 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, this is an opportunity for me to really work on this stuff. And the working on it isn't even trying to control anything or any, anything like that. It's just, it's an opportunity for me to be aware and notice what's going on in my own head. And when I, when I break down kind of what mind fitness looks like, like I've got an orientation model and that to me is breathe, focus, notice. And the breath work is sort of, you do it obviously is sort of a centering practice. I just think it's something it, it can activate parasympathetic, your parasympathetic nervous system and things like that. But once you do that, it's really just those two things. It's noticing what's going on and then focusing on something and vice versa. I'm going to focus on my breath and I'm going to notice 
when my attention goes somewhere else or I start thinking some anxious thought and then I'm going to try to direct my focus. And it's just a yin and yang balance battle between those two things. And then to your point, trying to bring that into everyday practice, which is really the critical piece. I say this all the time. Meditation, the 10 minutes I'm doing in the morning or later on in the day, that's great. And that has value. And there's scientific you know, ways that that improves your brain, certainly. But it's then how you apply that to your everyday existence. And I'll give you an example that's in your world that I literally just realized maybe, I don't know, maybe a year ago. I'm somebody who's like you, I've worked out my whole life. I take my physical fitness very seriously, mainly a CrossFitter for the last 10 years or so. And despite that, despite getting myself in the gym every day, I never really noticed what I was thinking during the workout. Mm. I've just never thought about it. And one day I'm in my garage rowing and it just for the first time occurred to me, maybe I should sort of meditate while I'm doing this. In other words, maybe I should notice what I'm thinking. And it was just all this negative stuff. Mm. It was, I'm tired. I can't wait till this is over. I'm out of breath or I'm worried about something else I'm going to do. And it was such a revelation for me because I would think, well, this is something I enjoy doing. And yet my talk track was super negative. And so I had to start really thinking about, okay, how do I not only go into this workout, but how in the middle of this workout do I tell myself I'm feeling good, I'm strong, this is beneficial. Um, And I I posted the other week a a similar thing where I was on a run uh, in a park on Long Island and I'm starting off this run and I just didn't feel good. It was like my legs were tight, I was tired. And again, I started, that was the talk track I had. And I just, I almost, I didn't stop running, but I really like completely flipped my attitude to, no, you're invincible. Like, this is awesome. Like you can actually, you can run faster. And it totally changed the run for me to a point where I almost got, I got kind of emotional about it. Mm. I'd, I'd watched Chariots of Fire the night, either, I think the night before. And there's that dude, Eric Little in that, the character, the Scottish runner who just runs and his arms get out of control and he's like his head goes back and he looks ridiculous, but he's got this like joy, this energy that's coming out of him while he's doing it. And I was like, my, my thinking was, there's no reason I can't tap into that. And I used to do it. I used to do it when I was 25 years old and somehow I just lost it mm. over the years where it became a chore, even though I would do it every day, it, there wasn't a sense of joy behind it. And man, that run changed in such a huge way. It was like I was running when I was 25 years old again. Um, Love that. So um, there was another point that you brought up that I've, I've forgotten what the question was going to be that I wanted to tap back into, but it'll, well, it'll come I, to I'll, what I, I love the way you just kind of walked through that. And if you think about those, the lowest levels of mindset, which is a victim, they're completely concerned with the external environment, what is outside of them. If you think about the highest level, the warrior mindset, it's only about developing their character. It has nothing to do with the outside whatsoever. In fact, a little bit of adversity outside is better because that will reveal their character. And it's this thing that as you climb up the ladder, you're focusing less and less on the outside and more and more on the inside. 
And that's what a meditative practice can do. But we, the challenge for us all is to bring that meditative practice or whatever it is, journaling, whatever it might be, to actual real life. And when those situations present themselves, figure out what are we focusing on? Are we focusing on the things that are happening outside of us, which by the way, it's not your fault. It's not anyone's fault. It's built into our physiology physiology from a biological standpoint. That's what keeps us alive. So basic survival is about recognizing what's happening through the, the five senses. If something is really, really hot, don't touch that again. It might burn you, maim you, and you might not be able to pick up a spear again. If you hear that rustling in the woods, that might be a saber-toothed tiger, you better run. If you taste this thing and it's gone sour or bad, or then don't eat it. It might be really bad for you, make you sick. Like everything, everything from a survival perspective is about your five senses. It's all about your five senses. But to live an optimal life, to really evolve and live as a human being can, which we're the only animals that can do this, we have to get past the five senses, which is what you're doing with your runs. In the beginning, it's all about the senses. My feet hurt, my legs are tired, my, I, I, I don't wanna do this, I, my muscles are tight, whatever it is. And then eventually you stop focusing on the outside and you start focusing on the inside. And it's about you as a person overcoming this challenge. The, it's, and you become, this is kind of cool that my feet hurt and now look where I am. And that's why you have this emotional thing because you're growing as a human. It's not like you're not, not just an animal. You're not just a racehorse. Racehorses are just like, they just, have, they just run and they run and they just R run. Right. And this is, this is why, this is why to me, this concept of mind fitness is so important as a species because we're kind of the only ones who can do it. And it's what makes us unique and different. The reason yeah. why we rule the world, dominate the planet, whatever you want to call it, is not because of our physical makeup. We're just compared to other animals, physically, not that impressive. In fact, it's funny. I was watching Chariots of Fire and thinking they're doing the 100 meter dash. And I'm like, well, if you really think about that, you could have some other animal, tons of them up there who just crush us in terms yeah. of how fast they can run or how strong they are, right. or the fact they can fly or breathe underwater. We have an ability to manipulate our minds and do things with our minds that other animals don't. And if we don't put a primacy on that, and especially given the fact that our entire existence is a mental construct, right? Like everything that happens to us just happens kind of in here, right? Like it's just experiential. And so if you can't work on that to improve your experience, which is to say, improve your mind, improve yourself, then you're not optimizing the human, you know, the human existence, right? The, your, your existence. Um, and you're not taking yourself to the to a true higher state of capacity, right? Like what you're able to handle, like you were saying. Absolutely. You know? um, I think oh, that was the point that that you made that I wanted to say something about, uh, like the stuff. I think what I was what I wanted to kind of dig into a little bit was you're saying it's like what's your capacity, right? Like what can you take on? 
And I think the thing to realize about that is you don't have to take on any of it is the point. Getting back to your, it's not happening yeah. to you. So it's it's almost like realizing that. That, that the capacity kind of isn't there to some extent. It's like you just, if you don't dwell on it, if you don't internalize it, then you don't need to have capacity, so to speak. It's just like, whew, it's it's not there, right? Don't pay attention to it. Don't intern, don't identify with it, whatever. Yeah, it so is. the other way of, of reframing that, how much can you handle is um, at what point are you not willing to let it go? Yes. So if, um, if you, if someone cuts you off in traffic, you're a pretty elevated being, it doesn't bug you, right? Like you can just like someone cut you off in traffic, you're like, whatever, dude, go do your thing. Like other people can't handle that. They can't let it go. And it can, now they're like going to do run up and like do the tailgating thing. They won't let that go. Well, that's a pretty, that's a pretty low bar that you won't even let that go. Other people can't let go of the spilled coffee. They get enraged and now like, oh my God. And they, they have, but other people have, there's other things like someone you get a text message you're not supposed to and you you see your two best friends talking crap about you. That's a harder thing to let go. But can you let it go? Because you don't ne- let you don't need to let that distract you. There's other th- when your wife says something, a lot of people I used to get I used to get I used to not be able to let go of the fact that whenever we would go away and we were packing, it would take my wife like the full day to pack. I'm like, I put stuff in a backpack and I I'm throwing in the car and I'm like, ready to go. And seven hours later, she's still like packing. I'm, I haven't, I couldn't figure out for like, and I just realized that like, I'm not serving myself by getting all bent up and it would frustrate the hell out of me to the point where like the next three hour car ride would be not fun because, and I, I eventually with enough work and it honestly, it took years, which is a shame, but it took me years to realize like, like you just said, you can just let that go. Like you can just let that go. It doesn't need to be a thing that rattles you. It's basically, it's all based on our, our mental constructs. There are things that have happened in our lives that have set this thing up that if this doesn't happen on this timeline, the way that you want it to, you should get upset. And that's just, it's made up. Well, and the other thing is that I think we don't realize uh, immediately is it doesn't exist anywhere else. That reaction, that thought, frustration, literally is only happening in your own head. Huh. So good, yeah. It's not a thing that's out there that you're, right? It is, it's a pattern of energy. I would say it's, you're right, but it is a thing. But just like it's a thing, like there's a tree in the woods, we don't have to get like wrapped up about a tree. Just like there's a window in that office, you don't get freaked out about the window in the office. That thought that you have can just be a thing that we don't need to assign extra meaning to. We can just let it be its thing. Just like you said, it's not a physical thing, but right. yes. ideas are things yes. and they, dreams they are, are things. They are, but yeah. but my point is they're ephemeral. They're fleeting. So right. the tree is still going to be there at least we think it is, whether you're looking at it or not. The thought 
wherever it comes from and wherever it goes is not going to be there forever. And it cannot be there basically as long as or as quickly as you want it to not be there. And that's the difference in my mind, because every thought you've ever had has come and gone. Yes. And you can bring it up again if you want, or you can think something similar, but it doesn't in the moment you can get rid of it. And at that point it's gone. It's no longer in existence. Right. I love what you said about, um, you know, like how we are a, a special species and um, that it's the mind that really is the differentiator. And that's so true. We have beautiful, amazing, powerful minds to the point where we've created things like this, where we could yeah. be face-to-face -face talking halfway across the country. It's, it's incredible. And we have air conditioning and airplanes and scissors. It's like, we have like, it's like all those things are created because the mind is so amazing yet what we, so the mind can do uh, one of four things. It can focus. Like if you're watching a movie or reading something, listening to a really enthralling public speaker, you're focused. It can problem solve. So it's too hot for me to do my work. I want to create air conditioning. It creates air conditioning. You know, it's like, I need to be able to cut something. We can create scissors. Like it's like, it can problem solve or it can fall quiet, which we can call in the zone, a flow state, whatever we want to pure joy. It can do that where it's just like, it's just like this really calm water or all and all those things are beautiful. Those things are amazing. Like focus, problem solving flow. Awesome. Love it. Unfortunately, what the mind defaults to a lot of the time is not one of those three things. It's the fourth one, which is not beautiful, which is chatter. And what chatter is, is the mind's so brilliant that we've assigned it the task of making our life really good. That's what we said. Like mind, go do your thing, make it really good. And it makes air conditioning, planes, and scissors. Cool. But what it also will, it, it'll it'll step up to the task of, I didn't like the way that person looked at me. <laughs> and it will like room, or like you, you ever like have like a conversation, like this podcast, like, and it's, they were having this great conversation. And then right before we click off, like I say something dumb, right? Or I click off by mistake in the middle of, and like, ah. Oh, I didn't mean to say, uh, and now like, oh my gosh, now Chris is going to think that I'm a total DB and like, what does he think this? And, and I'm just going to ruminate and chatter about that for and your mind's trying to solve for something that it doesn't need to solve. Right. This is the whole deal. Can you let it go? Can I just let that go? And as you said, it's eventually going to let it go, but are we going to spend minutes, that's hours, days on this? Right. Or so are we just going to- are we going to let it go now? That's the critical piece Yes, right there is this is eventually going to go away. Yep. So the question you need to ask yourself is, is there any, can you do that now? Right. Is there any point in holding on to this thought, this idea longer than a second or two? Right. Yes. Because like to your point, and we've all probably had this experience. I don't, it doesn't happen to me as much anymore because again, I recognize these things now, at least better than I used to. But all of us have probably had a point in our lives where we were angry for a extended period of time. 
maybe even like days where we're pissed off at somebody, not realizing again, at some point, that's not going to be true. <laughs> and what did, what was the point of that? Why right. did you spend the last three hours or days dwelling on something that eventually is going to go away and you're not going to care about anymore? Was that yes. valuable in some way? Now, I'm not saying anger can't sometimes be valuable. Maybe it can. Maybe it spurs you to action. Maybe it makes you turn over a new leaf or something like that. Or maybe it opens up a conversation with somebody that needs to be had. That can certainly be the case. But by and large, it's pretty useless unless it's, again, truly solving a problem for you or for somebody else. Um, can you talk a little bit? I'm just curious when in your life as an adult, as a dad, as a coach, you started adopting some mind fitness tools, meditation, breathwork, whatever. And you mentioned your, I'm just curious what your practice is like on a day-to-day basis. What do you do? Yeah. So it's, it's, I'd say it's kind of ramped up. Um, as a kid, I would say that I was just optimistic, right? I was one like, it's going to be good. Life is good. Like we're going to be okay. Like I would just spin things positive. Um, and then I started to get into, I started reading like Ray Dalio stuff, which is like, yeah. you know, just extreme realism. Like so I became like, I was like, Oh, I'm going to embrace realism, you know, be a, be an extreme realist. And then, um, you know, recently it's been more about a, uh, I, I don't even like using this word cause it off some pigeonholes, but it's like more of a spiritual practice, I guess. I've been reading a lot more, uh, that type of stuff. It sounds, but my, my actual practice, if there's, so I have, I have a pretty good morning routine, which is I wake up pretty darn early. Um, I read something spiritual stuff. And I mean, like it's, you know, anything like Bhagavad Gita, the yoga mm-hmm. sutras, uh, stuff like that. Um, Eckhart Tolle, whatever. Um, and then I'll journal about it. Then I do a sauna and, um, a cold shower. Then I do yoga and then I do pranayama breath work. And that's, okay. and then I go and do a, uh, a CrossFit workout. And that's my morning five or six days a week, except for when I travel. Okay. Is there a meditation piece to that? A truly, yeah, the prana. Of- yep. So the pranayama leads into meditation. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So okay. pranayama, I started off with like, I got kind of tricked into meditation a little bit. I, I started doing Wim Hof breathing cause I thought it was badass yeah. and it was cool. But the, the Wim Hof is just like, uh, it's a hack because it just gets you in a really deep meditative state super quickly because of the, you know, the, the really deep, um, O2, uh, CO2 exchange that's happening in the body. And it puts you in this, um, very parasympathetic state where you're in complete rest, relaxed rest and digest. And it allows your mind to not be freaking out about all these things that would be on the, uh, sympathetic side, you know, things that would trigger you or anything else. So I did, I worked with a, a Wim Hof coach for a little bit, did that practice for about, uh, eight or nine months and then, um, found a pranayama breath coach. It was actually a super, I worked with Tom Brady's pranayama breath coach. Um, he's uh, Deepak Chokra's cousin. So mm. it was like, um, super cool to have access to that. And it was super cool because 
it's actually a physiological, it's, it teaches you to breathe better, which allows you to get into that deep meditative state, deeper meditative state even better. So when you are there, you'll have kind of full access, um, which is super cool. I've, I've, I, it's one of those things that like, if you had asked me uh, in my 20s, would I be doing this when I'm in my 40s? And I would have said, no way. And I don't know if it's more, it's just more prominent now or it's my age or what, because you're doing it now. And I think you at 25 probably been like, Dude, like I don't think it's an age thing. I think there's probably people now that are 25 that do this that uh, would have been a- along similar paths, right? Like, I mean, if I looked at people that went to the same kind of back or have the same kind of background as me now, I think it's probably more prevalent. It wasn't mm-hmm. a th- at least it just we wasn't grew up in the same area. Right? We, in yeah. fact, we figured out that we probably knew each other as kids. Right. <laughs> your your best friend was one of my friend's little yep. brothers which is kind of funny. He lived literally across the street from me. Yeah. 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 Um, but it, this wasn't a thing that I remember as a kid yeah. where, where we grew up. I don't remember anyone ever talking about meditation, mindfulness. Which is so cool. I feel like, you know, there are these, there are these leaping off points for humanity, these like revolutions, right? Yes. There's like the, you know, the agricultural revolution. We are no longer hunter gatherers. We could settle down. We could create societies because we didn't have to roam with the the fields. And we didn't have to roam after the buffalo. We could like plant our crops and rave livestock. That's so life changing. Then there's the industrial revolution where you know we can create a steam engine. Things can travel faster than a horse, and you know we can do mass production of things. And that changes. Then we have the technological revolution, and then we have what's right on some of that. Now we have the, we're in the midst of a health revolution. I feel like we're sort of in the early stages of this consciousness evolution. Like you're yeah. talking about this stuff, you're doing these practices, and maybe it's just because the people we surround ourselves with, so if the conversations pop up more and more and more. But to your point, 10 years ago, I don't remember anybody really talking about this. Yeah, it's a, in fact, I hadn't thought about it in that context. Like. A, revolution that might be ongoing, but I agree with you. And I think just like a lot of things, necessity is the mother of invention, Mm, right? We find ourselves in a situation where all of these technological advances and even the COVID pandemic has created a situation that is exacerbating mental health problems, anxiety, depression, whatever. All those things are trending in the wrong direction for the most part, at least everything that I've seen. And by necessity, people are really starting to grasp or reach for something because there's, we need to, this is part of kind of the message that I'm talking about. We need to learn how to work on these things ourselves, right? There's only so many therapists in the world and it's, and it's just, these are tools, there are tools out there so much that we can empower ourselves to do. We just haven't been taught these things yet. And by and large, they haven't been widely accepted out there. But it's just those, the environment we find ourselves in now is one where we have to start doing these things yeah. because there's so much to that will, if you don't, will trigger you, will get you all, you'll spend your entire day doom scrolling on social media <laughs> or watching the news and screaming at the television. Right. And that is a total lack of awareness. That is just... All of that stuff is designed to prey on your emotions because that's what keeps you hooked. And so many people fall victim to it because they just don't realize the trick that's essentially being played on them. Yeah, it's, 
I, I, I love what you brought to light where there's like how much time people spend in these cycles that, you know, doomsday or yelling at the TV, like, can we just like pop up and have an awareness of like, is this serving me? Like, does this serve me? Like, is this going to help me move me closer to the life that I want or not? And I think that people just get caught up in this, this cycle, this thinking, feeling loop. Yes. And just, like, and to your point as well, it, I think technology exacerbates that because now you, it, what you think and believe you're fed more of that. So it's, there's more ammunition for to reinforce your belief systems even if they don't serve you and it, it just takes this you know i don't know if it's a maybe it maybe it does start with a practice just like kind of everything else like it does start with yeah. a, a meditation practice or it does start with an awareness yeah right it, it's an awareness of uh, because i view that stuff as almost like an addiction just like an addiction right. to a physical substance you're essentially addicted to a pattern of behavior or addicted to your own anger, there are these mm. things that reinforce the way you believe. See, that's what I'm talking about. Right. And that's a reinforce that makes you feel good because it's reinforcing the way you, the things you believe or the way you feel. And you're, you're addicted to that feeling. But you, what you're totally not aware of is, is the way you're essentially being manipulated. The fact that you are just giving in to raw emotion <clears throat> to feelings and have no sense of awareness about it. And, um, and yeah, I think it's a crisis to some extent of our society, our culture, whatever you want to call it, humanity in general. And I think that that's probably why more and more people are adopting these practices because they can't find solutions elsewhere. And there are no solutions really elsewhere. It's only like, to your point, this is an internal war. Right. This is an internal battle that you have to, and there's no end to it either. I mean, that's the other thing when I talk about mind fitness and, and physical fitness, you're never done. No one shows up to the gym and, and goes, I'm fit finally. Well, I'll see you guys later. That's like Seinfeld's thing, Jersey Seinfeld's thing. He's like, he's like, he's like, you see these guys are so fit in the gym and you're like, what are you doing here? You're done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's not true. Right, exactly. The point right. is that yeah. you have to maintain that at, yeah. and that means showing up every day. So it's the same thing. You have to Chris, adopt what, what's your What is your model? You started talking about it. It was orient or, mm -hmm. or breathe. Uh, yep. can, you give, can you give more to that? Yeah, absolutely. So the, I mean, one, the first thing is just recognizing, again, that this is, it's a spectrum, just like the physical fitness spectrum you talked yep. about from severe mental illness, whatever that looks like, to kind of enlightenment or contentment, whatever would be exactly right. on that end. And the fact is, everybody's some, that's not a yes, no thing. It's not one end or the other. You're somewhere along that spectrum, and everybody is. And you can move yourself further to the right, to the positive end of it, through training and practice, just like you can get yourself from being 100 pounds overweight to running a marathon in three and a half hours if you consistently work over time. To that same point, it doesn't happen overnight. You can't just go into the gym once and be like, okay, I'm ready for my marathon tomorrow. No, you gotta do a whole bunch of training to get there. And then if you wanna main stay there, you've gotta keep at it. You've, if you get to the level you wanna be, you then have to maintain it. It's gotta be a, a routine that you adopt 
forever for the rest of your life, right? The slight difference that I think is with mind fitness, everything we've talked about here, you can kind of change your mental framework, mental mm. fitness instantaneously. Right. You can do that, which you can't do with you. I can't go boom, six pack abs all of a sudden if I don't right. have them. I can't do that. But I can change my mental fitness in the moment. What the training does is allow you to do that better and, and more quickly and maintain it longer, right? And more often, all of those types of things. So, so the first thing is just kind of recognizing that. And then, yeah, the, the model that I've built, the way I look at it is we currently have a human performance model. I don't know when the term human performance came into fashion. Maybe you know, you probably know this better than me, but at some point we went from kind of physical fitness to human performance. But I feel like they're essentially synonymous. It's still a physically oriented model. It's diet, uh, exercise, recovery. And then we've now kind of tack on like biohacks and wearables and stuff right. like that. And then this mindfulness stuff has come into play. And that's kind of this model we have now of human performance. But to me, it feels like we took an old model and we kind of jury rigged it a little bit. And my thing is, if you flip it upside down to some extent, but make it cyclical and make it about mind fitness, you get, hopefully you can't hear that. They're like hammering something outside. Um, <laughs> you, get, you get physical fitness as a byproduct because again, everything's a, a mental construct. So if you focus on the fitness of your mind primarily, you're going to get the benefit. You're going to get physical fitness as a side effect, but you're going to get all of these other things. And you can make it instead of this sort of pyramid that ends, it just kind of loops back on itself. And I oriented into, I put it in three or uh, three modules, orientation. So every day you're working to orient your mind at any given moment. And that to me is breathing, focusing, noticing. It's just that practice over and over and over again, right? And there's various ways to do that. Development, which is learn. And again, each one of these modules has three components, learn, solve, create. So you, to me, this is where a lot of our modern mindfulness stuff, which is what people think of as mental fitness, falls short. We then don't say, let's develop our minds. We can be aware and notice things and do all that. But now it's like, yeah, but we can make our minds better. So to me, that's learning, which is basically continue education, read stuff, don't watch television, right? But like make yourself smarter. That's a good thing up your vocabulary, that type of stuff. And then also skills as well, because one of the best things we can do is learn a skill where we're building new neurons, learn an instrument, BJJ, archery, woodworking, whatever. Those two things are learning in different ways. Problem solving, puzzles, anything where you, you have to look at a situation and figure out the solution, not knowing what it is, right? That's a great tool to have and skill to kind of keep working on. And then creation. It's one of the things that we can do that other animals basically can't. It's like, how do I make something that never existed before? And that's where a skill is really handy. Like, so if I play an instrument, I can learn something somebody else has written or played, but I can come up with something that's my own, that is like I created out of nothing, right? So those three things. And then maintenance is the last module, which is basically the, the physical fitness stuff. But in terms of the healthier you make your brain, and I think of it as just like the maintenance you do in your car, 
this is the vessel, right? Or the automobile. And the, the analogy I use is your body and your brain are like the instrument. Your mind is the music, right? Your experience. That's, and that's ultimately, we're trying to get the fitness of the experience, but we still need to, we need the instrument to be tuned up. So that's diet, recovery, and exercise, right? I mean, I say nourish, move, recover, those things. Um, and they don't, I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there that's about brain health, and that's mm -hmm. great. To me, it kind of misses the mark to, this, to the extent that your brain is just part of your body. I mean, like, yes, does it help create consciousness? As far as yeah. we know, yes. But your brain and your mind are not the same thing. Again, the mind is the output, and that's you. That's the experience. That's the fitness we're going for because that's where everything happens. So that's and then again, that just goes back onto itself. That's mind fitness. Well, you've um, you had a you've used this word a bunch of times in this conversation, which is experience. Yep. What's your take on experiences? Well, I use it in the context. I basically use those three terms interchangeably mind experience and even you mm, like mm. I, what i am what you are right now is an experience right you're not a thing you are the output of the thing so to speak and that output only exists in the moment there is no past you really there's no future you anything that happened to you in the past doesn't exist anymore like to me a, a what your experience used to be is as extinct as dinosaurs. It's just not, it doesn't exist. You can't find it. You can't point to it. Only thing that's relevant is the current state, just like music, right? Someone's playing guitar. The music's coming out of it. The notes that happened 10 seconds ago no longer are in existence, right? Mm. The experience is that song in the moment as you're hearing it. And so it's all about optimizing that because, again, I, I use those terms completely interchangeably. Experience, mind, you, it's all the same thing. The health and optimization of that thing is what we're going for. That's the idea. So what about – so you've had some of the – I don't know any of the specifics, but I you've had some of the more – radical gnarly extreme experiences probably than that people had on than the normal person would have mm -hmm. how do you feel like those are those just gone are those just uh and 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 as a follow-up to that should we be seeking out certain types of experiences if that like if we can like where, where do you take on, on those two things? Well, I would say on the first question, yeah, they're gone to yeah. the extent that you can let them be. I mean, they are. They, they don't yeah. exist. So I'm, this is a thing I had to learn my own, on my own. I had stuff that I dwelled on, that I told stories about, that I had beliefs about. Mm. And it wasn't until I, I realized mm. through some various things, various work that I did – that there was it, like, again, the only place it existed was in my head. Mm -hmm. um, and I was telling the wrong story about these things. I was framing it in a negative light. Uh, I was beating myself up about things, but it, it's, 
I, it's a point we I kind of made earlier, right? Like you think that that it, there's something out there that's still impacting you, right? But it's right. not. It's only in here, and you just don't have to do that. You right. know, that experience is. You might have a. I mean, take a positive. What we think of a, a vacation or something, right? You've got photos or a video of it or something like that. So yeah, can you bring that back up? But the the experience itself is is right. over. It's gone, and you just don't have to spend any time on it. And I mean, what that's about, a what about people the, to figure out. That's yeah. that's why that's I love that. It's a very freeing concept. Yeah, right? yeah. And I think that's what we should all be seeking for: is ways to just live freer and freer. And I think that the biggest confinements we that exist are the ones that are the structure the you know structures that we create that aren't real. Yeah. And I'm going to respond to this experience because of the way that my past has conditioned me. I also think that we spend an off, and I know this is true with me and not so much anymore, but we spend so much time thinking other people are thinking about us. Yeah. And that winds us up. We think, (laughs) we worry about not what other people think about us, what we think they think about us. That's where our mind goes. And so if there's some place where you faltered or you screwed up or whatever, or you embarrassed yourself or you didn't make the CrossFit games, a lot of the judgment you heap on yourself is what you think other people are judging. They, you think that, and they're not. And it took me a long time to, yeah. to figure this out. Nobody thinks about you. <laughs> so two, two, two quick quotes that I've heard about that. First one was Winston Churchill who said, in your 20s, you're ultimately consumed by what other people think of you. In your 40s, you stop caring about what other people think of you. And in your 60s, you realize no one was thinking about you anyway. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and then the other one is, I am, I, I am not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. That's right. Yep. And it's, it's again, it's this idea that we're all, and this is, Again, it's a good thing that we all do view because it it gives meaning to our lives. But there's 7.5 billion people on planet Earth. Every single one of those people is the star of their own movie. And everyone else is the extras. I take it back. There's a few dozen or a few hundred extras and most don't exist at all. Like we don't exist. This is – and this is not a – negative concept. This is a freeing concept. We don't exist in 99.999% of the world's population, like in their, in their mind. We just aren't there. We have our very small movie that's playing out for us that we are the star of and our, our family are the co-stars and our friends. And then there's the extras, but it's just all these individual movies. Right. Right. It it doesn't we love to assign extra meaning to these events that are happening in our lives and say that and to your point you said earlier is like we get all worked up to the point where we might be angry for days only the point of let it fizzle and it goes away and it's nothing after a while and yeah. you know if it's if you're not going to remember this if you're not going to be worked up about this in 5 years why are you spending 5 minutes on it now? That's right. And there's one, there's a, you hear a lot of people say, 
you can't, can't care what anyone else thinks about you. I think that's mostly true. You shouldn't care what most people think about you and also realize they don't think about you and it doesn't <laughs> matter. But do I care what my wife thinks about me? Yeah. Do I care what my kids think about me? Yeah. Do I know what they always think about me? No, I don't. And so that to me is something where you work on communication with the people you do care about, that you care care about you and make sure that they're, you have an, own, an honest and open relationship with them where it's like, you need to be able to tell me when I'm screwed up and I need, need to be able to accept that and, and work on that. Because that, what you're trying to do is maximize relationships with the people that do matter in your life, right? That doesn't work when you're just assuming they're thinking something that they're probably not thinking, right? Thinking uh, what they're thinking about me that they're not doing. Um, and so, but you, but you still got to like have, the more you can communicate with those people, you'll get over all that stuff, right? And so that's one of those things that's out there that I slightly disagree with because it's, it's not that you shouldn't care at all about anybody out there and what they think. It's making sure you care about those that matter to you because you should matter to them too. I hope my kids care about what I think about them, you know, to the extent that I want them to live their best lives. I think that that does matter. So, um, can we go back? Actually, I want, there's another totally kind of separate thing that I want to talk about with you because I think it's really relevant and it's another, so I, I talk about various things I call mind killers and I take this from the Frank Herbert uh, litany against fear in Dune, like fear is the mind killer. Because for me, fear was the mind killer, still is. Like that's my main mind killer. That's what shuts me down is anxiety, basically. But I also realize there's other ones out there. And one of them to me is isolation. And mm. it's something we've really experienced in the last two years, whatever, two plus years with, and I noticed this with my going to the gym, going to the local CrossFit gym, which I was doing pre-pandemic. Gym got shut down during COVID. We built a home gym as a result in our garage so I could get all the physical training I needed to do. And then when the gym opened back up, I'm like, well, I don't really need to go back. I'm, you know, I've been doing, I own an affiliate. I've been working out like this. So it's not like I, I can do the movements. I can do them safely. I can push myself, all of that. But after two years of essentially working out on my own, I realized I was really missing the social aspect of it, the togetherness. And I think talking about where we are as a society, I think one of the, the reasons these conditions are getting worse is that we're more and more isolated. We're more and more in our just sit by ourselves in our home, in our office. We work remotely. I'm not saying any of that's necessarily bad but we're missing this social component. And I, I'm just curious from your experience as a coach and running a gym where people are getting, do you see that? Do you feel it? Do you think it's important? Is it something you try to make sure that you bring into your life to some extent? Yeah, I, um, I think it is important. It is something I'm conscious of. It's something that I, um, I'm aware of at the gym. Um, but here's the reason I think it's important is in terms of the factors associated with health, I believe that there's five with two subsets. The five factors of health you talked about, um, you know, uh, I think it was move, nourish, and recover. Yep. The way I the way I would frame these is um, 
It's how you eat, sleep, move, um, think, and connect. And the connect is how you connect with yourself, others, and nature. So let's break those down really quickly. The the nature one, if people are like, what the? Like, okay, so go hug a tree. Like, go walk around barefoot. Like, become a hippie. There's so much evidence, so much research done on the benefits of being outside, period, but even more so outside of the concrete jungle like a city. There's one of the more um, poignant examples of this is there was a housing project in the south side of Chicago that was built decades ago. And one part of the um, project was facing the parking lot and the other one faced the woods. I know this. Yeah, I know this. Yeah, keep and going. decades later, they went back and studied the success and happiness and health of those people. And it was so drastically different with all else, all the factors being accounted for. That was the separator. So yes, it could be correlative. It's not causality, but just so incredible how that small little thing of like, did you stare at concrete or did you stare at um, the the woods? There's other ones that are simple as like what people have, if you're looking at pictures of nature, it's we're, we're, we're a part of this thing. As, you, as a species, we are inhabitants of this planet. And this planet is not just us. It's more than that. And experiencing more than just us gives you a different sense, a different perspective, a different connection to something outside of us. So I'm going to get to the answer. Then I won't. But the, the other part is what, we, what we've talked about a lot, which is the connection with you. Are you aware of you? Are you aware of you being anger? Are you aware of you with a confirmation bias that like, see, I told you this is the way it is. Like, are you aware of that? Can you connect with your breath? Can you connect with these triggers? That's just obviously so important and impactful. But the third part of that connect is connecting with other people. And to the point where the actually the biggest, longest study that's ever done on human health is through Harvard. It's lasted decades and decades, like 100 years, which is so hard for a study to go that long because the researchers die, they lose funding, the <laughs> participants have no longer have interest. So it's over 100 years still going where they study people's health. And the number one conclusion that they've come to is not what you hear about all the time with like the blue zones. It's about eating vegan. It's not about living in places that, you know, have no toxins. It's not about doing CrossFit. It's the people with the most deep, meaningful relationships live the happiest, longest, most disease-free lives. Relationships. Not the number, but the depth of the relationships is the number one thing for us as human beings. Right. That's Which just goes back to what I just said, right? About caring about the caring about the people you care about. We how have they to care. And, and communicating, right? We are not so as you be, I think what happens a lot of times is as people kind of go through this um, this journey of trying to walk from um, um, as you said, like mentally ill to enlightened, right? Well, people can look at the enlightened as like, well, it's just, it looks like total aloofness. Like, well, I don't care about anything. Like 
It's just like, I'm just going to float in the clouds and I'm a total hippie and just go live in the woods. And it's, it's not that at all. It's just, it's not that at all. It's, are you free from all the things that are keeping you from having those incredible deep connections with nature, with yourself and with others? Can you eliminate those things? Cause what you're at, most people are actually doing is living in the matrix. They're living in something that's not real. They're not really experiencing true unconditional love because they're experiencing all these other things that are influencing them inside of them that are messing up the journey. If we could get rid of all that stuff and truly can, I'm not there. Like this is a journey, but of course, if we could all, if we, but if we could, if we could, this is the pursuit, right? This is what we, we, we wake up every day striving towards is can we get rid of the junk, the baggage, let that shit go so we can truly experience, as you said, not something that don't continually experience this thing that isn't real anymore, this memory, but truly experience this moment, the only thing that actually is happening right now. We're playing the music now. Are you listening and experiencing the music? Because the notes that were played five seconds ago aren't playing anymore. And there's, this brings up a point. One of the things I talk about as well is this trend of self-care, right? And there, and people feel different ways about this. There's people that are, hey, anytime you feel something, you got to go sequester yourself and work on yourself. And then there's other folks who are like, my grandfather, your grandfather never had self-care, like just suck it up, that type of thing. That's as we tend to <laughs> polarize just about every argument out there. And my thing about it is I just, I don't like the term because in a world where we are more and more isolated, what we're saying is the solution to some extent is more isolation. It's work on yourself, right? Do that. Hey, you're feeling anxious to whatever you've got going on. You need more self-attention where I think, okay, sure. There's some of that that you should be doing some of this meditative practice, but maybe you should just get together with some friends and go hang out because I actually, the more I thought about it, a friend of mine brought this up was like, well, yeah, your grandfather actually did have self care. He had his bowling league or whatever that he did every Tuesday night, or your grandmother had her bridge club or what those types of things, which to your, they were social activities where you got together, you bullshitted, you got stuff off your chest. And, and it was a way where it, it just, didn't hold everything in. I think your point about the blue zones is a great one. I don't have any data, but I always think that exact same thing, which is when people talk about blue zones, they always focus on food. Yeah. And my thing is, okay, there's a lot of other variables at play there. And when I've been to some of these places on the Mediterranean, these people are social at night. They hang out and like they drink wine and stuff like that. And they're doing it so there's a lot of things that by pure food standards probably aren't the healthiest, but they've, they're doing other things that are bringing joy yes. and uplifting their experience. And I think that's such a huge piece to it. From a, it's such a good point because what we haven't really talked about is we've talked about like there's the mind and mind fitness and then there's the body and there's body fitness, but it's the interplay between the two. Yes. That actually creates the health. And to the point, there's the trillions of cells on your body. Each one of those cells 
is trying desperately to interpret the environment so it knows what to do. And if it's receiving signals that, hey, things are cool, things are chill, just do your thing, then it goes and does its thing. But if it gets a signal like, whoa, all hands on deck, we got some shit to deal with, it's not going to go do its thing. And what I, this is like, so go do your thing. We're cool. We're chill is the parasympathetic nervous system, rest and relax. It can actually happen. The other one, all hands on deck. Don't go do your thing. We need to go and fight off this invader type thing is the sympathetic nervous system. Well, the way your body, your, the cells experience that is not through the environment. That's not how it happens. It's not going like they don't have eyes. They don't have ears. They don't have the five senses. It's not happening through the five. It's actually happening through the sixth sense. It's happening through your mind. Your mind is interpreting the environment. By the way, your mind's not experiencing the environment. It's interpreting the environment. And through that interpretation of the environment, it sends a signal through your central nervous system to the cells to either create health or stop stop creating health. We need your help to fight off this immediate urgent emergency. And doctors know this. If you have a organ transplant, what the, the, the doctors do beforehand is inject you with stress hormones. They literally do this because when you're stressed, your body suppresses its immune system. And with a suppressed immune system, your body won't fight off the new foreign tissue. It'll just, it has to accept it. Well, this is the the case against chronic stress. And chronic stress is very different than acute stress. Acute stress is healthy. Acute stress is a CrossFit workout. It is a cold shower. It is a sauna. It's doing public speaking. It's doing things that make you uncomfortable. But on the other side of that, it's short-lived and you're a stronger being because of it. Because as one of your pieces of module, you recover. And during the recovery process, you get stronger and now you're a formidable human being. But if you're in a constant state of stress, if you're in a constant state of stress, stress, you are no longer producing health. So the grandfather that had his bowling league, the Mediterraneans that are kicking it with their homies and having a glass of wine, what they're doing there is living in an environment that's mitigating stress. That's how they just have fun. Now that's different than, you know, having 22 Bud Lights and it's different than going and, right. you know, um, doing something that's destructive. They're having good, truly in air quotes, healthy fun. And yes. that lowers stress. If we lower stress, you are a healthier being. And then all of a sudden your instrument is tuned up. And now your mind can play the music and the vice versa. And now this interplay between mind and body, it's not mind, body, it's mind and body. They're the same thing. Well, and uh, a medical center that I was at recently, they frame all of this in terms of, uh, what what was the term you used? I can't remember, but in terms of information. Oh, so you said signals, the signals at the cell. They use the term information, which I think is such a great, I'd never heard it put that way. But the whole idea is that the cells in your body, what makes them healthy is getting the right information, mm-hmm. correct data, so yep. to speak. 
And that information comes in different forms. It can be the food you eat. It can be the liquids you put in your body. It can be the stress that you put on yourself through exercise or otherwise. But it can also just be your attitude and your thoughts. That's information that interacts with your cells. And this is what this is where I personally think Western medicine falls short is we don't think of the energy applied to our bodies in various ways and the effect that that has. We sort of just think of the chemicals in various ways, whether that's food or drugs or whatever it may be. But we but information comes in other forms and the energy that's applied to our cells, to our bodies, through our minds and our nervous system is just as important as what we're putting in our mouth, right? Love that so much. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Like uh, Mark Hyman has said, like food is, uh, food is information for your DNA. It's telling it, you know, but to your point is it's not just food. It's your, 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 your cells, your DNA, it's constantly trying to interpret the environment. So you're giving it signals. You're giving information all the time and that's telling it how to express stuff. And this is the world of epigenetics, right? You are not, but you know, your genetics are not your destiny, but there's a, a myriad of ways that your genes can actually express themselves. They'll express themselves in accordance with the way that they're interpreting their environment. So what information are you, I love that information. What information are you feeding to your genes, to the DNA? That's right. really powerful. Right. And you can think of it just like information that comes, you can get bad information, Right. that you act poorly on, right. or you can get good information that helps you in some way or makes oh, man, you act I love in that so much. Manner. Um, well, cool. Well, maybe we should end on that since that's a high note. Um, <laughs> not that, I mean, everything was great, uh, but really enjoyed the conversation. Anything else? Is there, is there another piece to this or something else that you like to espouse that you want to talk about real quick? I know we got a little bit of time here, but you got a hard stop in probably 20 uh, minutes or so. No, I would say that, you know, I, I think that one of the, you know, we talked a lot about trying to frame the, the, the way the, the mind is working and how that affects the health of the body. You know, I think that one of the biggest things in like real world, just kind of like if there's one thing that people do that causes the most uh, disruption, it's this constant need to, for judgment and trying to constantly like, if you can just let go of, I I like the, the, you know, be curious, not judgmental. Mm -hmm. If we could just, you know, Walt Whitman, if, if we could just let go of this constant need to judge everything, like everything as we love the binary, we love the labeling as good and bad. And as you said, there's a spectrum for most things and we don't have, we probably don't have enough information. We're using the word information again, but we probably don't have enough information to even truly know if something is good or bad at this moment. So you're getting so worked up about this thing that you really don't have the full perspective on. Yeah. It's, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a story. I'll, I'll tell the, the paraphrase it, but it's a story of the wise old farmer where the wise old farmer um, has a son and they have a singular horse and the son leaves the gate to the to where the horse is kept and the horse runs away. And all the villagers come running up to the wise old farmer. And they're like, oh my God, your son's such an idiot. Like, I feel so bad for you that your horse ran away. He said, we'll see. 
And then three days later, the horse came back and he brought with it five other horses. And all the, far, the villagers come running up to the farm and they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. You're the richest guy in the village now. You're so lucky. And he said, we'll see. <laughs> the next day, the son is trying to break one of the wild horses, get kicked off, and he breaks his leg. Again, the villagers come running up and they're like, oh my God, you're so unlucky. And your, your son, the only person who can tend to the farm, you know, he can't do that now. You're so unlucky. And he said, we'll see. And then three weeks later, the village comes under attack and the townspeople go door to door, collecting all the young men to go fight in this horrific war where everyone is dying, but they have to bypass the son and spare his life. And the moral of the story is we get so worked up and judge everything in the moment as this life or death thing, good, bad, amazing celebration or terrible trauma. Like, and we don't have enough perspective. We don't have, we don't even have, we don't know any, like, we don't know anything. Like what is, like what is this thing that we're doing right now? This thing called life. Like we don't have any clue as to what this whole thing actually is. Yet we get worked up because, uh, you know, the stupidest, smallest little things. Yep. You know, like yeah. your your best friend invited someone else to the ball game instead of you. Like and oh my god, like it's like we like. I would say just. Stop trying to judge everything and trying to assign meaning to everything. Let it go. Let it be. And try to just see everything as a growth opportunity. Yeah. There's a Marcus Aurelius quote that's, I'll paraphrase, but it basically says, you don't need to have an opinion about everything. I love And remember, that. he's saying that to himself. That's in meditations. That. That's basically in his journal. Yeah. And I wish we would take that into practice. Last night, I was having a conversation with people and they were we we're talking about San Francisco, some folks from San Francisco, and we we're talking about the homeless thing. And I just said, I don't have an opinion on it. Like, I don't, I, to your point, I don't know enough about it. I'm not going to sit here and say, I know how to city plan, or I know how to solve that kind of a problem. And it's, it's not something that I need to spend any time on. I'm not saying it's, it's an issue for certain people that needs to be dealt with. But it was like, there's no reason for me to take that issue into my life and make it part of something that's winding me up for some yeah. reason. I'm just going to say, I don't have an opinion. It's not value. value yeah, and that, that, that extends to things that have happened directly to you as well. Right? Like you get, um, you get fired from your job. Like that's an easy, like, of course that's terrible. Like, of course that's, that could set up the rest of your life to be so much more yeah. magical than it would have been in this job that you probably didn't like anyway, if you got fired from it, like, so I just think that we can stop trying to judge everything. Stop trying to judge your own performances. You know, if we all want to be, you know, you know, we, you've used the word enlightenment. Uh, it's popped up a couple of times, but to me, that's like what a flow state is. A flow state is where you live in the present moment with open-mindedness and non-judgment, which is what yep. meditation is supposed to be a practice for. Meditation is supposed to be not, can you think about nothing? That's not what meditation is. Meditation is, can you just not assign extra meaning to your thoughts as they come in? And as they come in and you don't assign extra meaning to them, they stop playing the chatter thing. The chatter sure. goes away because the chatter is essentially like an annoying toddler living in your head. Like, like Chris, hey, Chris, we got Chris, we got to fix this. Chris, we got to do this. Chris, Chris. Right, right, right. And how do you stop an annoying toddler? You ignore them. It's, there's only one way. You don't rationalize with them. You don't try to have a conversation with them. You just – the only way to get a irrational, hyperactive toddler to be quiet is to ignore them. And yep. that 
is what we do with a chattering mind. You let the mind have it, do its thing, but you go, there you go, mind, doing your crazy thing. I'm not going to get involved in that. And you're trying to just let it chill out a little bit while you sit over here. Um, so last thing here. One, real quick, your new book or your second book. Give, give a quick uh, overview of that because I, I wasn't aware of it. <laughs> I, uh, I haven't done anything to promote it really, it's, uh, I need, which I didn't do for the first one either. It, um, I just, I, I, I'd rather just kind of let these things do their thing. Um, mm -hmm. But it's called Unlocking. So first one's Chasing Excellence. Next one's Unlocking Potential. Um, and it's a story of um, the business. So Chasing Excellence is about coaching and building athletes. This one's about uh, business and building teams. Cool. It's a leadership. It's leadership. Okay. From a business perspective. And is it geared towards aff affiliates, gym owners, or it's anybody? told through the story of uh, running my affiliate and okay. um, programming company called CompTrain. So it's about that's the the backdrop. That's the story. But the lessons are about base. It's really about entrepreneurship. Cool. Where else, if people that don't know you and aren't following you want to find you on the internet or out would, there? In, yeah, I would the, say on the web. Where should they? Yeah, look? I would say I don't, I don't even like to give out my Instagram. I don't think people should be on Instagram, so I don't even say that <laughs> one anymore. Uh, but um, comptrain.com okay. um, is the business, and there's a lot of stuff that we kind of drip out, like in terms of mindset through that. Okay. Cool. Ben, thanks, man. Really appreciate it. Good well, to man, see you as always. Always, Chris. Yeah, man. All right. Thank you. Thank you.